950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Brand new to you show, Jack Rice returns for a visit, and we have an insane amount of things to talk about. Jack Rice is the best defense attorney in Minneapolis, St. Paul. If you have a case, get in touch with Jack Rice Defense. That's Jack Rice Defense. Talk to him, sit down, explain your case. He'll give you honest answers and have an honest discussion with you. It's uh, Jack Rice Defense is the law firm. Uh, law firm. And of course, he's when he ha- he's not on court TV, which my God, the camera loves you on court TV, Jack. <laughs> uh, that'll teach him. <laughs> <laughs> no, you. I I can't tell you. It's great. I mean, you you seem to be doing a lot more there, and you know, God bless him. I mean, that's good for them. I mean, you're bringing in quality with you. That's for sure. Well, you know, it's one of those interesting things. Is that is that when I when I look at law in general in the broadest sense, here's the thing: is if we think about all the things that keep us together as a society. The real thing about law is that we all want to believe and should believe that basically we're all treated the same, that we're all equal. We're not. We know that's true in the world. But what the law is supposed to do, it's supposed to say we're all going to get the same shake. And really, this is one of the very few things in society that actually binds us together. The idea that we will all face the same wrath if we do something terrible, that we will all be protected if we're doing something right. That That is something that's important. And when you see a system where people don't buy into that, that's when you start to see it not just fraying from the edges, but it starts to break apart from the inside out. And in many ways, that's what we've been seeing in the United States. I'm not just talking about George Floyd. I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm not just talking about anybody. But if you think about various groups of society who start to look at this legal system and say it's gamed, and it's gamed against people like me, what that does is that creates that sort of instability. And that's frankly what we have been seeing in this country now for some years. Jack, you and I, we, we have so many Trump legal things to talk about, but we got to talk about the, the, the one that uh, broke the midweek here right before the holidays, and that is the Colorado state of Colorado ruling that Trump indeed did participate in an insurrection. Henceforth, he is ineligible via the Constitution to be on the ballot in that state has been removed. It's clearly going to go to the Supreme Court. First of all, your thought on this. This was a this was a one vote uh, ruling in Colorado. And it's it, it, I mean, this was after quite a few days of testimony of people saying, why shouldn't he be on the ballot? That sort of thing. Well, one of the things to remember is this lawsuit was originally brought by six Republicans. And so when we think about what this is about, we got to think a little more deeply about what this means. The whole concept goes back to the 14th Amendment. And this thing was adopted back in 1868 after the Civil War. The whole idea behind it was once you essentially swear an oath to the United States of America, if you engage in an insurrection, you are barred, you are banned from actually serving in the government. The real idea for this, by the way, was to keep Confederates, to to exclude those who supported the, the Confederate government, the Confederate army, from actually serving. They were trying to protect and pull the country back together out of fear that what would happen was all of those people in office, all of those governors, all, all of those mayors, all of those other leaders would simply roll back in and they just keep fighting the fight. So that was what this was about. The fact that we saw this in Colorado is quite extraordinary because what this forces 
is it forces a factual question, a legal question, certainly, but a factual question is there because what it really talks about is, was there an insurrection? Can it apply to the president of the United States? If we talk about all of the, the, the lawsuits that are going on, not and all of the criminal indictments that, are, that Donald Trump is facing right now, key to those, fundamental to those, is the question of whether or not a president can actually feel the wrath of the American people if they choose to prosecute him. And so if we think about what the Supreme Court of Colorado did, and the potential for others, now this was rejected here in Minnesota, but it's still pending in other places and could be brought back up again because this may actually give it some steam. Mm-hmm. It raises that question of whether or not a president can actually be prosecuted. Donald Trump is arguing he can't, by the way. At every stage when he can argue these points, he is saying he has a, either a First Amendment right to do whatever he wants or you don't have the right to prosecute a president for what he did while he was in office because he has full and complete and utter immunity, and maybe even, we can talk about this in a bit, the question or the ability to pardon himself from any and all actions that are filed against him. There's a lot to talk about, Matt. Well, and let's let's go back to the difficulty of writing a law like this. Uh, we can go back to Woodrow Wilson. There, there also, Woodrow Wilson in his second term has a massive stroke, and by all accountability, he was not fit to be president of the United States. And by the way, fun side note: his wife was basically the president of the United States for that time. We had already our first woman president. But the What's about time, yeah, exactly. The the one of the things that was interesting was when they looked at the laws, they didn't really have a clear-cut path to actually remove them, which they then fixed. Then that was one of the next amendments to the Constitution, was to say, okay, we need to have an ability that in this case happens again, we have the ability to remove a president. That seems to be where we're at now because, you know, when when you're looking at someone who's like a confederate, you know, that, that was kind of a cut and dry, you fought against the United States, you killed, helped, killed, killed a lot of United States citizens, henceforth it's there. There does seem to be this question of process with this is where does this go? I mean, in the other cases, it came through the Congress. This one's coming out of a state. And the question, and I saw a lot of people talking about this, is that actually legally able something to do? Does this have to originate from the federal government or does it, can a state individually do this? It does seem like that there's, when just applying this, because it's not been applied a lot, there are a lot of, there's a lot of vagueness to how the process goes. Matt, I love being on with you because this is actually the rub. This is actually the question that we really should be talking about. Donald Trump is going to come. Donald Trump is going to go. The next one's going to come. The next one's going to go, whether it's a Republican or Democrat. It almost doesn't matter. Uh, The real question is, how do you fix a problem like this? How do you fix a problem where any president goes off the rails and there is always that potential. The thing is, is we bought for a long time that it would never happen. We bought that what would happen was we will have various philosophical beliefs, but there were always a fundamental love and respect for the process, how the United States works, what we would do, what we're willing to do, and how far we're willing to go. I think people would even look back at the likes of a Richard Nixon and say he did a lot of things that were clearly illegal and clearly inappropriate. But 
even in his worst moments, I think most people would probably agree that there was a fundamental love of country. It may have been misguided, but this is a guy who actually was looking to the issue. Hence, that's the reason he resigned. But if we think about where we are now, we saw a president who came in and started to tear at the very fabric of how the country actually operated. Let's think about how he worked with the Department of Justice. Let's think about how he actually dismantled and started to pull apart the Department of Defense. Let's take a look at how he approached various organizations within government and pulled them under his authority and said, the people who will be in office are those who are loyal to me above all. And what happens when you have a president in a space who can actually do that? What do you do? Because the question should be happening right now in the bowels of Congress is that the Republicans and the Democrats should sit down and realize what happens if you get a Democrat who loses their mind, who's out of control? Because you've got to get the Republicans to recognize and agree that this isn't a question of Donald Trump. Donald Trump's going to be dead in 15 seconds, five years, 20 years. I don't care. But the point is, institutionally, how do we make sure that no president has the ability to shake the foundations of how the country operates and starts to turn it into, in some cases, what we have seen in the developing world, Mm -hmm. what we saw in, in the likes of Ukraine, what we saw in big parts of South America, which, by the way, the United States was fundamentally involved in um, pulling to pieces, and I say that based upon my experience as a former CIA case officer, we think about those things. And that's a big part of what these lawsuits are about to some degree. But really, I'm wondering if Congress is ever actually going to step up, as we just um, talked about, and really address the ability of a president to dismantle this to do what it is they want to do. The and by the way, and you, 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 what you just touched on there. I mean, they're trying to clean up the whole thing with the electoral college and the vice president because they realize it's like, well, that can that can easily go the other way too. So they, it seems like both sides are trying to, you know, and, and some of this stuff is you don't know until you goes through it. Some of this stuff, but the the Colorado case specifically, it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Your 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 thought. By the way, it must. Uh, by yeah. The way, just so people understand, the, the Colorado Supreme Court case. Yes, it's a, it's a question of the ability of President Trump uh, to actually be on the ballot um, in, in Colorado. But the thing is, is they're applying a federal uh, constitution. And so what we have in the United States is, is a two-court system. You have all the state courts, hence those go up to the Supreme Court of each state in which they're, uh, uh, they apply. But all of those federal laws and the federal application within the states themselves typically works their way through the state courts, if that's how they apply to do it, uh, up to the state Supreme Court, and then can jump to the federal Supreme Court because it's a U.S. constitutional question. This is a nightmare for the conservative judges out there because it basically comes down to this. They have to look at the footage of January 6th, and they themselves, as a judge, have to determine whether or not they see an insurrection happening, which clearly there was. 
And they're going to have to rule. And we already, I think we can see this cab coming down the street with his doors wide open. They're going to have to rule he didn't. But it's going to be one of those rulings, you know, uh, Gore v. Bush, you know, I mean, you know, kind of one of those cases like Dred Scott where it's going to live on because you have the court itself with the ruling, with the decision, with the, the prism that they're looking through, which is not necessarily the legal prism, but they're looking through a prism just to get done with the case. And it ends up getting something bad because I can tell you right now, any, I mean, we already know Alito and Thomas, probably Gorsuch are all going to vote though. There was no insurrection, but when you get to, you know, Kavanaugh, Barrett and uh, Roberts, they're going to have to sit there and say, yeah, okay, fine. I guess it wasn't as they're trying to show that they are not just some partisan element of the government anymore. Yeah. Well, guess what? That's, that's even a slightly different wrinkle. What we have come to realize within the United States framework, and this is, I think, part of this broader question that we've just been talking about, is the legitimacy of these organizations themselves. The undercutting of them, like the Department of Justice, like the FBI, like the Department of Defense, and so many others, and the U.S. Supreme Court. There was always an argument within the Supremes that they were above the fray, that they were apolitical, and that, in fact, uh, they were the ones that sort of straddled all of this to create this fr- this legal framework. What we have come to realize, and I think this is more true now than maybe ever, that this is a political organization in every sense of the word. And so depending upon how you want to stack them, how they decide you can get the right person in office, what you're seeing right now is something else. I mean, understand, this is, this is, I would argue, probably the most conservative Supreme Court we have ever had, bar none. And they're making arguments, and they're actually reversing, completely overturning things that, generally speaking, you would never see a court. And you're even starting to see the insides of these, what we're seeing with Justice Thomas, mm-hmm. most recently, about just how political, in some cases, how potentially bought and sold some of these people actually are. They turn around and say during the confirmation process, oh, no, I haven't even thought about that. And I can say that sitting, I remember being in the room when Sotomayor was actually going through that process. I was about 10 feet from her. And you watch that process for her. She jumped through the hoops just like all the rest, saying all the right things, was trained in just the right way to say everything and nothing all at the same time. The problem is if nobody buys into it because they think the system is gamed, is what I was talking about at the beginning, what you get is the fraying of the system from the inside out because it feels like it's never been fair that everybody's being played and everybody says, ah, but we're above the uh, banal politics of the day. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. Not even at the Supremes. Well, and let's co- let's call it Thomas. I just refer to as RV at this point, and Alito I call Five Star <laughs> because you know they're, they're, they they're 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 so compromised. I mean, and any any time they come out and say, "Well, no, I'm not compromised." Oh, please, come on. You enjoy. How's your mom's house? You know, I just, that's all I have to say. It just it's it, it is just a travesty how what what that court has become. But this is this was by design. Uh, the let's let's look at some of the cases here. We got let's get into the one case before we get into the break, and that is um, the New York case because it's been it's been interesting to watch. What what I think has been fascinating is Trump has become 
it seems more and more unapologetic for his bad business behavior, which he's clearly guilty of. I mean, my God, it's just it's it's clearly that he is he's a fraud. But yet, you know, it's like the you know he he gets more and more incensed every day that someone's actually trying to hold him accountable for it. That's maybe the biggest fear, actually, that a lot of people right now that I've been talking to uh, are particularly concerned about is, is what this has actually done is emboldened him. He's realized that the answer isn't to explain it. The answer is to say, yeah, so what? So what? This is what I do. It's all mm-hmm. good. Do, do what you want, because I, I don't care. By the way, I'll come up with some weird, funny name for you, or I'll start attacking <laughs> your clerk, or I'll start going after somebody. And, and that's what gets talked about rather than the question of him not paying taxes so everybody else has to pay more. Um, or, or somebody else having to cover his expenses because he doesn't want to. And some will argue that's good business. And my response is, no, actually, it's way more than that. Uh, and that, that's an example. I mean, he's already liable. Yeah. That's what we're seeing in New York. That, that's the thing. Is that ship has already sailed. We've already said that he was what the organization and what he did personally was fraudulent. We're saying, in other words, he was lying flat out. And the legal response was, yeah, well, but they all got paid back. Actually, that's not true. Because the whole point of this concept was that what he did is they was, he was fraudulent about his values as a result of the fraudulence of his values, uh, of what he was taking loans out on and everything else. The banks who were lending him money were lending it at lower rates than they would have otherwise, or maybe not not at all. So whether they got paid back doesn't fix the problem. The problem is is that they actually lost money because of his lies, and that's actually a crime. That's actually the fraud. So that New York case is still sitting out there, and yet it's not hurting his political numbers, which is really an interesting aspect. But that's not the big case. You got to be honest, because the one I really want to talk about, and the big one is Georgia. Oh yeah, and we'll, Georgia is the giant case for him for a whole bunch of reasons. Well, and 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 one last thing about the New York case, which I this is the funny part of it. How many of his own? I mean, he wants people to lie for him under oath so badly. And they keep putting these people up on the stand and said, well, did you believe it? Oh, God, no. I'm not going to go on the record as saying it was worth that. And, I mean, it's I, it's I have never seen a defendant whose own witnesses have turned on him in such volume as Trump, not because they dislike him, but because there comes that point where they realize, oh, I'm sworn in on the stand. If I go along with this, I'm now culpable. And they realize they've got to basically start telling the truth. Well, I'll tell you what, you know it's really true when the lawyers start doing it. Uh, I mean, that's when you really know, let's face it, man. You can back it into a corner, put a gun in our mouth, load it, put our finger on the trigger and say, what was the answer again? I don't recall. It takes a lot. But what I can tell you is that what we can do is we can read a room. And what I can tell you is, let's take a look at the indictments that came for, by the way, a bunch of his lawyers that started in New York, also who were the same ones who were in Washington, D.C., right? And even some of the ones who were in Florida, those are some of the same ones who got indicted in Georgia. And by the way, some of those originally are the very same ones who actually have pled guilty subsequently. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying now is you're watching everybody else reading the room. If you're called as a potential witness in any of these uh, criminal cases, you're not just looking at the case in front of you. You're looking at the cases around you, 
and the potential future cases, because it's not just what happens in Florida. It's not just what happens in Georgia or D.C. or New York. It's the potential for the other ones, because, because the president wasn't just doing this, allegedly, in Georgia. He was doing this in Arizona. He was doing this in Nevada. He was doing this in Florida. He was doing this in all of those tighter races, and the concern is they can pull the same trigger. And so all of those witnesses now are saying, well, I don't want to be a co-conspirator if I can just be a witness. Trust me. Trust me, Matt. You never want to be a (laughs) co-conspirator. Not with the former president of the United States. Not with this guy. This is why I have no friends. This is why I have no friends. I don't want to be a (laughs) co-conspirator. That's exactly. See, that's the right answer. I live alone. Uh, Jack Ryan's Jack Ryan's joining us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let's let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll hit Georgia first. We'll get to the CI missing CIA intelligence because you are also our foreign intelligence expert. Let's talk about that as well. Coming up in the next break, in the next segment, Jack Rice joining us for the hour on a brand new to you show. It is the Matt McNeil show right here on AM nine fifty. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show, brand new to you show with Jack Rice, part two of this here. Uh, we we got to get into Georgia because, as you said, this is a more dangerous case, Jack. And we've had a few developments in the last few weeks where one of the, the one of the co-conspirators has lost their lawyers and still insists that they've got a chance. And Meadows got, uh, I think he was kicked back by the federal court saying, no, 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 you can't move this case. Once again, you get back to this. You've said this from the get-go. RICO cases are tough to defend because they kind of, to bring a RICO case, you've got pretty much a lot of evidence in your favor already. Yeah, but it's not just the fact that you have a lot of evidence. It's the nature of RICO. The whole concept behind this is what it is, is you essentially have a criminal conspiratorial organization. You're creating something which was designed to go after the likes of the mob. And they have done this successfully on a federal basis. And so it really started in that way. But what makes Georgia different is this. Matt, RICO is something that Georgia has, but it's their own kind of RICO. And so what they can show now, what they can use now, is not even prior crimes or prior bad acts. It could even be prior good acts to show that other people were involved So you can loop in even more evidence than anybody else. It's like RICO on steroids. Now, you also start to think about uh, how this prosecutor, how the DA in Georgia knows how to do this. The DA there is very, very good. She has a lot of experience, and she has a lot of experience handling Georgia RICO. This makes her different than almost anybody else. I've talked to friends of mine. I'm in Georgia all the time when I'm doing court TV stuff, Mm -hmm. and I'm in Atlanta where this is all taking place. And what's going on there, and this is based upon what I'm hearing, is that one of the problems is that the RICO statute is different and different enough there that bringing in criminal defense attorneys to represent Trump and the others, the problem is that they're not as good as the Georgia ones because it's so (laughs) unique to Georgia. So they're struggling with what this means. So what you get is you get the ability to basically say this was a big organization 
And this big organization as a whole was designed to actually go out and do these terrible things. And so as a result, we get to bring in all of it and blame everybody in the organization for everything that everybody else did. Think about how much harder it is when you're responsible for everything else that was done and you can't say, well, it wasn't me, I didn't decide that. It doesn't matter. You're part of the organization. That's what makes this so hard for Donald Trump. This is a much different thing. And this is the biggest of all. Well, and it, it, one it, of the, go, well, the, go this ahead. Is the one, this is the big piece, is that all of the other criminal indictments, all of the other criminal problems, we're talking about New York, D.C., and Florida. The fear is that if Donald Trump were to become president again, he actually has the potential ability, nobody knows for sure because this has never been done, he's the first person in 234 years to ever be indicted as a former president, but that he could actually pardon himself. And the difference in Georgia is it is a Georgia state case, and a president of the United States does not have the legal authority to pardon himself. And it's probably the strongest case. And that's the problem that the president faces. That's why, by the way, that's why a half a dozen of his own lawyers, actually who were charged as co-conspirators, have already pled. Yeah. And you think, you think they pled with the idea of saying, oh, no, no, we don't have to flip on the president? They're all going to flip on the president. <laughs> as we said, Cirque du Soleil. But, you know, you, that's the first sign that that's trouble for Trump, is that the lawyers themselves are like, they're reading the room. They see where it's at. So the, the, so the one guy that's the bodyguard says, I'm going to be a tough guy talker. Yeah, you don't understand what's about to happen. The lawyers are trying to get out of the way as quickly as possible. The other side of it, too, is in Georgia, they are, they've gone after the Republicans that let this the cat out of the bag and told everyone what was going. They've gone after Fannie Willis. They've kind of tried to go after her. They've had zero success. I mean, this is, it's almost like we're seeing, by the way, in, in Georgia, an eleva- uh, the evolution of a Republican Party where it's becoming a very different Republican Party down there because even though you got the MAGA guys that are trying there, the, the Republican Party itself is kind of knocking this down saying, no, we cannot allow our laws to be manipulated like this. And so you're seeing a level of integrity, which kind of it's kind of refreshing to see. Uh, I remember when we used to be like this, and and the reality is is that this there is not anything. There's no like side note. There's no scandal. There's no impeachment. There's no nothing that's going to get in the way of Fannie Willis. And right now she's got Trump in her sights. Well, if we remember, one of the things that happened was uh, President Trump himself was actually uh, on tape trying to convince the Secretary of State of Georgia to go and find 11,847 votes or something along those lines. And it's all on tape. I mean, that's a big part of this. It's extraordinarily strong. It's his voice. It's him specifically demanding and requesting this. This is part of that criminal enterprise. That's the part that makes this incredibly strong. And by the way, it wasn't just him. We're also talking about the likes of Giuliani, who just this week, I guess, um, he was found liable in lawsuits against two election officials yeah. where he went after them and to the tune of $148 million. I think I said that with the pinky of my finger in my mouth. <laughs> well, and, and, and he's too stupid to get out of his own way because he's now actually defaming them again, and they're already suing him again. So, you know, he's in trouble there. But going to Georgia, what, what is the next case? Obviously, what are we looking at after the beginning of the year? Where, where does this RICO case go next? That is a wonderful question because nobody knows for sure. The trial is actually scheduled to start on the 5th of August, Mm -hmm. and it was going to start earlier. And part of the problem was 
you know, there are some that were going to start even as early as like February or March. They kept getting pushed back. And what the president's people have been trying to do is to push all of these, everything out until after the election itself. And obviously what, what the, the reason is because the president wants to inoculate uh, himself from prosecution. Well, he's going to have a very difficult time on the Georgia ones. But you think he doesn't have the ability on the federal side? Of course he does, because he has an impact, the ability to impact who the prosecutors are, who the U.S. attorneys are, who the people who work for them are, because he's the president. He's the one who actually puts them before Congress. All of these things he can do, and he's more than willing to do them. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. You've got to realize one of the things we have seen, and this was something that I saw when I was working for the intelligence community, was that what we were desperately trying to do, especially in the Eastern Bloc uh, after the fall of the Soviets, was we were trying to help them create an independent, a truly independent judiciary. And we worked incredibly hard to do that because when you had so many people doubting the legitimacy of the government and the judiciary to do their jobs, that's what was causing that instability, which we were talking about at the beginning of this program. And so we were fighting desperately to deal with those issues. This is exactly what we're talking about here. What we're, what we're actually discussing is exactly what the U.S. has been fighting against everywhere else for the last 50 years. And yet, here we sit with people trying to decide this is a Republican versus Democrat issue. It is an extraordinary, oh deviation from what I think philosophically we were as a nation to where we actually sit right now when it comes to this question. The other two cases, and you did briefly mention them, let's just touch base a little bit more on them. Uh, clearly the case in Florida, the, 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 the documents case, even though he's dead to rights guilty on that, I mean, uh, clearly. Um, he, you know, Cannon down there definitely seems to be on board with the, let's push this off to the election and then, okay, if he pardons himself, I, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, the, the case in, in D.C., uh, my guess is going to be the Supreme Court will will help him limp over into the next, you know, the next presidential term, whether that's him or, or it's Joe Biden. But it's it's you know, I, I still think that that one's got a lot more teeth, especially now that Jack Smith, who's a, who's the representative who now has to hand over all of his cell phone data. Oh, uh. I just read read about that. It just came down. It was like thirty nine hours of of, um, of of just enormous amounts of, of text because mm-hmm. he was trying to argue that this was. Uh, as a member of Congress, that this was somehow protected. And they went through all of it and said, actually, it's not. This has to do specifically with this issue. And what you were discussing has nothing to do with your work as a member of Congress. And so, so therefore, it doesn't have some sort of extra level of protection that you sometimes will see. Well, and I think they learned their lesson. You know, I think when the Secret Service tried to delete all their phones, they went and found a lot of that. I mean, they went and they sent their teams in and they did find a lot of that stuff, a lot of those communications. Some of them are gone, but, you know, the the Secret Service guys that deleted that stuff that people were trying to get that information from kind of showed that you can try to get rid of this stuff, but we're going to find most of it. Well, I I can tell you on that issue, man. I mean, again, I'm a, a criminal defense attorney. I've been doing this for many, many years, and I was just sitting in a county attorney's offices this week. And what I was looking at was uh, cell phone records. And I was looking at photos and videos and text messages and everything else from a phone that somebody thought they had wiped, that they had uh, uh, deleted. 
And there is a lot of different programs, one of which is called Celebrate. And what it does is it can pull back a whole lot of things that people don't realize. And there's even better ones in the intelligence community where they can basically take a phone completely down to its, at, to its elements just about. And they can pull so much information, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you think things disappear kind of like putting something on Facebook. Once it's out there, it's kind of out there forever. You're, Just remember that, kid. Don't forget. Oh, they, sh- they shouldn't. And, and grandparents, too. Don't uh, you know, don't be sending any pictures, guys. Let's just make, let's make, let's make sure they're without that. Uh, all right. Let's, you, are, you mentioned this. You are also an expert in intelligence and the foreign intelligence agencies that work in our country here. we got to get to what is what I think is a grossly underreported monster story which is a 10-inch thick binder of raw Russian intelligence transferred from the CIA, went to the White House, and it disappeared. And it sounds like, and I'm not too clear on this, but it sounds like it was a binder and a zip file with some of the the, the most top-secret stuff. It sounds like it was intelligence, not only from our own intelligence-gathering organizations, but leading intelligence agencies in Europe as well. You had to have the top, top, top-secret clearance to have this. Meadows had it. That's the last person they know for sure had it, and it's gone. No one knows where it's at. I'm going to guess it's in Russia at this point. Let's talk about that because this is you and I have talked about the willy nilly nature of Trump with intelligence. And there are always I mean, he might think it's one piece of paper, but there are always repercussions, especially if it's all of our intelligence on a specific you know, a foreign country. If Trump handed that over to, to Putin, the damage that he's done to not only our intelligence services, but other intelligence services is you know, catastrophic. Yeah, Matt. So just to be clear, I, I, again, I am a former CIA case officer. I worked in the directorate of operations. And when I left the agency, I was called opening. I opened up, which means I could talk about the fact that I worked there, not specifically what I was doing there. But I'm talking specifically about classified information uh, right now. Now, let's think about the, the general areas of classified information. You have confidential information, you have secret, you have top secret and what you will sometimes hear is somebody has a, uh, a, a top-secret clearance. There's actually something above that, and I had that too. It's called an SCI, Sensitive Compartmented Information Clearance. And what that actually means is it goes up into levels above the top-secret. But the thing about those is that those compartments, those are only accessible depending upon whether you need it. It's, it's a need-to-know basis. And so the whole purpose was to try to compartmentalize because this is how you protect something. If you have a big vat and anybody can look at it, the whole concern is that that means it's out there to an unlimited number of people. You get to a place in the SCI world, what you're talking about is a number that's finite. You actually know the people, the eyeballs that actually looked at this thing. That's the point of it. Now, if you talk about something that ends up at the White House for the president— what we had for a very long time was something called a PDD, Presidential Daily Brief. And what this included was not just raw intelligence, meaning something that it wasn't about what analysts took it and said, this is what it means. It was actually the intelligence itself. But what it also included, and this is the big deal, it included what's called sources and methods. And what sources and methods are are the actual people that it came from. So a particular person in a particular place, in a particular country, doing a particular job, and then specifically what that person provided. 
The problem that happens when you have that piece of information is it's great because it allows you to assess the value of a piece of evidence. But what it also does, if you are a foreign intelligence service who would pay anything for something like that, it allows you to stop that intelligence from being released from your country. And in some cases, what you get is if you get even the source of it, meaning not just um, the person, but even just the intelligence itself, that gives you the ability to re-engineer it, reverse engineer it, to go back and say, who would have known about this? Mm. And as a result of that, in the past, I can say with some confidence that there are intelligence organizations in the world that when they found that source, they worked their way backward, and they likely ended up killing that person and potentially every member of their family. Mm -hmm. So this is very, very, very real stuff. Now, I realize that was a big explanation, but I think it was necessary for this basis. So what we have now is this 10-inch document in a zip drive that ends up at the White House. The fight was always about what President Trump wanted to actually uh, declassify this information. The problem that this president doesn't seem to understand was he was disclosing intelligence like he did in the White House to the Russians very specifically without understanding the ramifications of what they did. Guess what? You give them one particular piece of, of intelligence, you give them that, that's the reverse engineering piece. That's the ability to say, well, the Americans knew this one thing. How could they have known it? Yeah. They worked their way backward, and that's when people start to die. The idea that there would be a 10-inch uh, binder with this much intelligence plus all of the same intelligence or different pieces of intelligence from other uh, intelligence organizations in the world, whether those are the Germans, the French, Mossad, um, uh, Oman, etc., uh, etc., et all of those organizations, it's all of their people now who are exposed, plus all of their assets that are exposed. This is actually the worst, most catastrophic fear, because remember when we talked about having – a, a notion of every eyeball that would have looked at this, when you can take a 10-inch thick binder and just have it drop out of sight, that means you have no idea how many copies were made. You mm -hmm. have no idea who's looked at it, what it means. You almost have to assume that every single thing in it is compromised. Every single person who was involved is now either a double agent or dead. And every piece is now completely and utterly useless. This is potentially billions and billions of dollars, countless lives, countless careers, and years and years of work that are simply gone and will never be uh, found again. And in the end, you also get all of these other intelligence organizations who will now never cooperate with us again. Yeah. Because we know that we just roll around and say, hey, you want to take a look at this? What do you think? Hi, anybody else? I'll just read it all on the Internet. Why not? The, well, okay, to your knowledge, I heard some stories, and I, I don't think they were credible news sources, but I'm going to ask you if you've heard anything, that in the days after Trump left office, there was a scramble because assets were disappearing, and so they knew something was up, and they had to evacuate a lot of people. They had to get people out of there. Some people just disappeared, as you described. Had you heard anything about that with, you know, head-scratching, like, what happened here, and now that this is out there, like, okay, now I can put one and one together here? Yes. Yeah, you did actually hear about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's scary. That's terrifying. How does okay, so Podesta 
gets in big trouble because he goes to a facility to look at documents and he's there. How in the how in the world does a a, a document like this get out of the you know I, I worked I had a security clearance when I was in the army. And so certain things I had to go to the 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 quarter the quartermaster, I had to go to the warrant officer, I had to go into their office, and in their office there was another office and I had to go back in there. If I had to look at something, I could only look at it in there and then I could leave. That was the case. How does even? I mean, did Trump order the CIA to to take high level intelligence and bring it over to the White House? Well, it's unclear exactly who made the order, and you know that politically speaking, all of those issues sort of deal with each other. But there were orders that were apparently made, and an agreement that was made that the the CIA would actually have a safe at the White House, and then they would have even another safe. Inside their other safe, <laughs> a safe inside a safe, and they actually called it a turducken. Yeah, think about it. And, and the turducken, where they would keep this kind of a document. And the whole purpose is that it was about accessibility, because this was the fight at the time where the president wanted to declassify a whole bunch of information on the Russians, because he said, he decided that this was all part of the conspiracy to take him down because there was an argument that Putin and the Russians were actually fighting to put him in the presidency because they thought that he would be more helpful to them because they don't care about Trump or anybody else. They care about the Russians, as they should. Um, that, that he felt that if he could dis- de- declassify that information, then he would be... Uh, they would acknowledge that, that he, in fact, wasn't the bad guy that everybody, at least the, the Democrats, said that they were. But the problem is, is when you just simply start going through the intelligence and just declassifying everything on your own without actually understanding the ramifications of it, this is how people die. Yeah. And, this is, and see, this is the other part, and I'll be honest. One of the reasons that I left the intelligence community was that the sacrifices that are made by those in the intelligence community are catastrophic. They're lifelong, and it impacts them, it impacts their family, it impacts everything that they do. And then what would happen was some of those decisions were horrible and stupid, and they made bad policy, and then our job was to do the best we could do with it. But worse, you also got these same politicians, and I saw them on both sides, that would more, they were more than willing to use these political opportunities and use this stuff as leverage and use this stuff as political grist, when in fact there are lives behind these, some American, Indeed. some foreign national, some uh, CIA assets. All of those things are true. Yeah. I hope the story gets more more coverage because this is a catastrophe for our intelligence community and it's at the hands of Trump and Meadows. So more on that, hopefully more on that to come. I'm going to go back and say it again. Jack Rice is the best defense attorney in Minneapolis, St. Paul. If you have questions, give him a call. He'll sit down with you on his talk. It's jackricelaw.com, jackricelaw.com, Jack Rice Defense. Jack, it's always the fastest hour of radio I do in any given freaking year, man. (laughs) This is fantastic. I really appreciate your insight, all your knowledge. My God, what a wealth. Thank you very much. You make my show better. Thank you, my brother. It's always a lot of fun for me. Take care. Jack Rice, It's uh, let's take a break, come back, wrap up the show when we do return. It is the Matt McNeil Show.